Well, I'm glad we are here uh, this morning. We get to spend time in God's Word. Uh, God's Word never disappoints. Every time we come to it, we are always edified and built up. And so we are asking for that this morning. We, we, and we know it will be granted to us. Uh, we're continuing in chapter 3 of John. We're going to finish up John's go- uh, chapter 3 of John's Gospel. We're going to cover verses 22 through uh, 36. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and they were, and he remained with them and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. There, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all, and what he has seen and heard, that which he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time here this morning. Again, Lord, we come to your word anticipating uh, and expecting to hear from you this morning. Father, we know that your word does not return, uh, go out and return void. And so we know that it will accomplish exactly what it's supposed to accomplish this morning. And we ask that you bless our time this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So in these early chapters of John's Gospel, we've seen Jesus in several situations um, where it uh, appears, and it is so, that He is bringing in a new kingdom, a new way. He's inaugurating new things. Um, Jesus made uh, new wine early in the Gospel. And remember that it wasn't just new wine, it was very good wine. Um, Jesus also said that he would be lifted up like the servant in the Old Testament, but he'd be lift, his lifting up would save all of his people from their sins, not just from physical death. So we see this this um, comparison, this this newness that Jesus brings uh, to is bringing to the world. And today we find a comparison between the ministries of John the Baptist and the ministries of Jesus. First, we are told in the verses that we read that after the conversation with Nicodemus, that Jesus and his disciples went into the land of Judea. Well, if you're paying attention closely, that's a little confusing. Why? Because where are they at that time? They're in Jerusalem for 
the Passover, right? Where they had the interaction with um, with Nicodemus. Well, Jerusalem is in the region of Judea. Uh, other translations say that Jesus went into the Judean countryside. And I think that helps us understand exactly what um, John is trying to tell us. Uh, what, he's, what John is trying to tell us is that he, w- he was in the city of Jerusalem, but now he's moved into the countryside, a more rural area. That's uh, what we are to take from these words of John saying he moved into the land of Judea. He moved out from the city into a more uh, rural area. And we are told that he baptized people here. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning, but uh, what we know, and we're going to read it in some verses uh, next week, is that actually it wasn't Jesus who was doing the baptism, or the baptizing, okay? It was his disciples who were doing most of the doing the baptisms there. And we're going to spend some time uh, talking about that next week and the significance of that. Um, short, uh, the, short, the short of it is what we can take away from the fact that Jesus allowed his disciples to do the baptism was Jesus didn't want to make it seem like only he could baptize. Okay? Um, because if, if it made it, 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 if he would have been the one doing the baptism, then people want to be baptized by Jesus, right? And it would seem to downplay or to, to, um, to make the baptism by people other than Jesus, okay, less valuable, which is not the case. Okay, the baptism uh, by the disciples and, you know, fast forward to our own time, by our own ordained ministers is just as valid as a baptism from Jesus would have been. So Jesus was careful not to, to, to try to give anybody some false expectations. We'll talk some more about that next week. But the time um, here he says he was baptizing, it was his disciples who were actually the ones doing uh, the baptism. And now it's at this time the focus shifts back to John the Baptist. Not the Gospel writer, but John the Baptist. It says he was still baptizing people. Okay, His ministry was still going. He was still baptizing with the help of his um, uh, disciples. And as we look, at, and of course what we know about John the Baptist's disciples, we know that one of his disciples, Andrew, we read about him earlier, Peter's brother, has already left John the Baptist to follow Jesus. Now, you know, that's not strange. That doesn't seem, you know, why would he do that? Well, I mean, John himself said of Jesus, remember the declaration, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away uh, the sins of the world. And so, it's not strange that Andrew would leave John the Baptist to go follow Jesus. That's nothing, nothing wrong with that, but... We know that at least one has already done that. There may have been others. Uh, we don't. We don't know. However, what we do know is that John the Baptist still has loyal disciples. He still has people with him who are following him, and uh, it's that the loyalty that we see here is what prompted this question here that we have before us. Okay, they're loyal to John the Baptist, and and. They are seeing some other things happening. Now Jesus has come on the scene, and now he and his disciples are baptizing, and a lot of people are going to him. And so that's that's where they're coming from. They're loyal to John, and that's where it prompts uh, this question. Because what do they observe? They observe Jesus is doing more baptisms. Right? That's what it, that's what they observed. Um, Jesus is doing do it, and his disciples are baptizing more people than John the Baptist would be. 
And so it appears at this point, the disciples, not John the Baptist, as we're going to talk about, the disciples are jealous, envious of Jesus' ministry at this point. Uh, Jesus was gaining in popularity with some, not with all, but gaining in popularity, and John the Baptist apparently is now starting to lose it. And when you think about this jealousy, this this envy, it's something that all of us uh, have experienced um, at one time, you know. And and if you, it, it, we will experience it again, I'm I'm sure, because we all we all struggle with this type of jealousy um, and maybe envy or even covetousness, which which does what? It causes us to see what others have, and we want that. Okay, I I mean I I know this is a this is a struggle for I know me in my own heart as I I see things and people have this and man I really want that I wish I had that that someone had right or you may be uh, envious of of a position maybe that someone has um, and I know that uh, all of us of course as we we come to these verses as as we talk about this we have to in our own hearts fight against this this is. This is something we have to fight against uh, in our own hearts, that this emerges, right? We see that if we're honest with ourselves. And I think we have to, it's helpful to remember the words of Paul, right, over in uh, Philippians 4, where he said, you remember what he said? I have learned that whatever state I am, to be content. I just, that's an amazing statement, isn't it? I have learned that whatever state I'm in, to be content. He adds to that what? He says, I've had much. And I've had little, right? I mean, I've, I've, he, he, he's, he's seen the whole spectrum. And what does he say after all that? I've learned to be content. And contentment is, uh, is a gift. It is a, a state of mind that we can be content in where Jesus has us, has us. And we're going to talk some more about that. But, so this, 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 this envy, this jealousy, these disciples are watching this. And so it's with that that they finally now do what? They're going to come... To John the Baptist, they got some concerns. And so they're coming to him. And so in verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, which you remember is a term of respect, uh, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Well, his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, obviously are a little distressed about the situation. They are uneasy, right? But clearly, John was not. Um, John was not at all alarmed, okay? Or upset at this news that came to him. In fact, what we find is he was almost the exact opposite, right? He was pleased with this report. His uh, and, and and so Jesus is going. Excuse me, John is going to reply to them, and his reply to them is instructive, and it's also it's instructive for them, but it's also instructive for us today. In verse verse twenty seven, he says, "This is John the Baptist. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven." Well, in one sense, uh, John is speaking about the principle of vocation. Okay, in one sense. Now remember, um, a vocation comes from a Latin word uh, that means to call. Okay, and that's to be called to. And that, you know, 
today, I don't know about you, but I think people have reduced, I guess, a sense of vocation to just maybe they just look at their employment as just a job. Right? How many people do you know that just have you worked with them or you know them? It, it, what they do for a living, where they earn their paycheck, it's just a job. You know, there. Have you come across people like that? that you know, it's, it's just a job. And and as a as a result, what do you see in the way they do their job? You can tell that they think it's just a job, right? Because a, a silent quitter. That's a good phrase. A silent quitter. Um, I, that's a good one. Thank you for sharing. I hadn't hadn't heard that one. But to think of vocation as a sense of calling, that you're called to do something, uh, I think really acknowledges that every talent that you have, every ability uh, that you have has first been given to you by God in heaven. He's been given, it's been given to you for a purpose. And we all have different abilities, different talents, different things. Uh, and we all have our own uh, vocations, our own callings, have you, if you, if you have it. And, and, the, and the reality is that God has called each one of us to the exact place where you are in your life today. He's called you there. He's equipped you. He's called you to where you are uh, today. And if, and we all, I, I think, would understand that and believe that and say, yes, that's right. But if we're honest with ourselves, we too, like John's disciples, often struggle with envy and jealousy. Uh, we find ourselves, especially in, uh, you see it in, uh, in the work world, we find ourselves and others trying to step over people in order to advance, to get promotion. I've seen that many times, right? I've seen that. You've seen people um, try to manipulate others, uh, try to do things underhandedly to do what? In order to advance, in order so they can advance over uh, someone. Uh, and... When we do that, we are in our hearts really despising the gifts that God has given us. And we are kind of raising our fists at Him. God, you, I know better about this and let me, let me show you what I can do. Instead of, instead of being content, like Paul says, instead of being content with where God has us. Now there's, there's nothing wrong with uh, when you think about in, um, in your career or whatever, nothing wrong with seeking promotion, right? There's nothing wrong with that. It's nothing, you don't just, you know, I'm here, I'll just always be here. So it's, it's okay to, to, to want to be good at what you do and, and to seek advancement. It's okay, right? That, that's, but but when, you, when your heart is motivated by something else than just the best for your calling or for your vacation, then it, it kind of creates a problem for us in our own hearts. Well, what John knows as John knows his vocation, John the Baptist is very clear on what his calling is. And it's in that knowledge of his calling, that, and, and that's the reason why he is so delighted to see that Jesus is growing in popularity. In verse 28 he says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. From, from the start, John has been the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. He's, he's the forerunner. He's the herald. He was not the Christ. He's been very open about that. Um, so being the herald, 
Now, the one who was in the wilderness proclaiming you know, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. So now he's, he's thrilled because this long-awaited Messiah, the one who has been foretold since, uh, since the garden, he's, he's now here. The Messiah is here. And now that um, he has pointed to Jesus, he's acknowledged Jesus as the Lamb of God, uh, the Messiah, and now... That testimony, that ministry that John the Baptist was about, what? Now that, that ministry of Jesus is bearing fruit. He's been announced. He's, he's inaugurating this new kingdom in, 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 in his life and his ministry. And now it's bearing fruit. It's doing exactly what it was supposed to do. So John the Baptist is thrilled. He goes on in verse 29. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. <clears throat> what we see here with John is he's most likely thinking back uh, to the Old Testament where many times Israel was referred to as... Um, as the bride of God, okay, uh, and of course, an anticipation. We know in the New Testament that this image, this idea of the church being the bride of Christ, is used many times in the New Testament. And so we see the, the church age, the New Testament age. We see many times the church compared to and or referred to as the bride of Christ. Anyway, what John was saying here, John's telling his disciples, "Listen, I'm not the bridegroom." I am not the bridegroom. The bride doesn't belong to me. The bride is His. I'm the best man. I'm I'm the guy that gets to stand next to Him. And I'm very, very happy, just as you would be uh, if you were a best man standing next to your best friend who was about to get married. You'd be very happy. The spotlight is what? It's on them. It's not on us. Right, and so, and so, John, um, for for John, and, and, I, and we can see this by his testimony, the things he says. He's he's considers this this calling, this vocation. He's been called from God as just an amazing privilege of unmatched joy. He's John's doing exactly what God called him to do, and he's finding joy in that. He gets to be here uh, as the bridegroom is being revealed. He is, uh, John is not at all coveting after the bride. That is not, he knows his calling. He's completely delighted and, and, and extremely delighted to be standing with the bridegroom at the wedding. And then uh, here in verse 30, we have. Um, probably one of the most uh, famous statements ever made by John the Baptist. One of them. Not, not the only one, but one of them. And we see here in verse 30, John saying about Jesus, he says this, He must increase, but I must decrease. Now as we consider what John says here, uh, the first thing we need to point out is that 
it's a, and, I, and I think we understand this, but we just need to cover it. John is not trying to work out some sort of strategy here. This is not a, you know, people do this in polit- political campaigns all the time, right? They do it uh, when they're trying to advance over people. They work strategy. They try to manipulate people, right? They do all kind of things behind the scenes, right? They say one thing, but behind the scenes, they really mean something else, right? You, you've seen this. You've, you've been around people who do this. You see it in politics every day. Right, our political world is just that's that's how they operate. Right, it's behind the scenes. It's it's we'll say one thing while we're doing something else. It's smoke and mirrors, right? But that is not at all what is happening with John the Baptist. He is not at all thinking like that. He was he was not. It's not like he's saying, "Well, guess what? Good good news, guys. Uh, we can lighten up now because we pointed uh, to the Messiah just like we were supposed to. Now we can sit back a little bit and re- a little bit and relax." Okay, that, that's that's not what he's saying. Okay, he was not saying that. Now, what what did John say? He says he must increase. He says he says he must increase. Okay, he used the word must. What what was John saying here? John saying it's, this is his increase. The increase of Jesus as the Messiah must happen. It's it's not. Optional. It is absolutely and completely necessary that he be increased, and and so the increase of Christ here was just. It's not just an option. It's not something that just happened. Uh, this is a command from God to John the Baptist. This is John knows his his calling. He knows why he's here, and as Jesus increases, he, he must increase. Jesus must, and I therefore must. Uh, must decrease. John was, again, called to do what? What was his vocation? What was his calling? To go before and to announce Christ. And when he emerges, he was to do what? Go into the background. Okay? That's exactly what John is doing. And that's exactly what is happening. So, John's saying, listen, what's happening is absolutely necessary. It's not an option. I must decrease and he must increase. And John states uh, plainly uh, the reason. He adds he's going to spend uh, some next few verses talking about this. One thing, um, when you think about this statement from John the Baptist about Jesus increasing and himself uh, decreasing, uh, Calvin had a wonderful, um, a helpful comment here. He says, John declares that he will most willingly endure to be reduced to nothing, provided that Christ occupy and fill the whole world with His rays. And this zeal of John, all pastors of the church ought to imitate by stooping with the head and shoulders to elevate Christ. Do you see the the connection that Calvin makes with this attitude that we see in John the Baptist? What's what's the connection? He's making connection. Okay, we're in the New Testament. We're in the church age. And uh, we don't have prophets anymore or apostles, right? But we have pastors. We have teachers who lift up high the Word of God. And he's saying, and all pastors today in the church should imitate the attitude of John the Baptist by, by stooping the head and the shoulders to do what? So Christ is elevated and raised high. 
Well, in these next verses, uh, 31 through uh, 36, John the Baptist gives five reasons uh, for Christ's uh, superiority to himself. Uh, one, he says that Christ has a heavenly origin. That's in verse 31. Uh, two, Christ knew what was true by first-hand experience. We see that in verse 32. Uh, number three, Christ's testimony is always his testimony is always agreed with God the Father. I see that in verse thirty-three. Uh, the the fourth one, Christ has experienced the Holy Spirit in an unlimited manner. And fifthly, the way that John the Baptist gives uh, a reason, the fifth reason he gives for Christ's superiority to him. Number five, Christ was supreme because the Father has sovereignly granted that status. To him, it is a position. It is a station that has been given to the Son by the Father Himself. Verse, first half of the first one of those in verse uh, thirty-one, just the first part of verse thirty-one. It says, "He who comes from above is above all." There is a little bit of a play on words here, isn't it? Uh, Jesus was not from Nazareth, although that's where he was. He was raised, right? He didn't. He didn't just come uh, from Jerusalem along the Jordan. His point of origin is where heaven itself. That's where he came. He came from above, and so since he came from above, he is above all. Now that's you can, again the play on words, right? Literally above, higher than, but he came from heaven. He came from the throne room of God. He's above all. He's physically, literally above, but he is in a very real sense, above, right? He is, he is above everything. He's higher. He's greater than everything because He's God Himself. And then what John does is he contrasts Jesus' origin with His own. Uh, the second half of verse 31, it says, He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. What's, what's John saying? He said, I, I'm just a man like you guys. I'm a, I'm a human being, born of a man and a woman. I was I'm created just like all of you. I'm a created human being. I'm John says I, I'm not like him. He's God. He's God incarnate. He's above all. I'm not like him. And so he adds about Jesus in verse uh, 31, the last piece of it: He who comes from heaven is above all. He's adding to what what uh, he said earlier about Jesus coming from above, and then and then John speaks now about Jesus' own message. What has Jesus been saying in verse thirty two? It says, "And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies." So John here is agreeing with Jesus' testimony about himself, and he's agreeing with his teaching. It says that Jesus is is saying what he has seen and what he has heard. Later in John uh, chapter twelve, Jesus says these words: "For I have, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command: what I should say and what I should speak." The Father has given the message to the Son. And Jesus has now come down from heaven, His heavenly origin, and He has a message straight from God the Father. His message is to all the world. 
He, Jesus came with the words of God directly. He received them directly from God as an Old Testament prophet. He received words, but, but what was special about Jesus? He was there with him. He, he's, he's God. He's, he's this message. It's there. There's no filter. It's uh, this, this relationship, this heavenly uh, Trinitarian relationship. And so he, he came with the words of God as divinely um, appointed as this apostle, the apostle, right? The apostle of the Father. And so then uh, John starts describing some of the reactions to Jesus' testimony. In verse 32, the second half of verse 32 and verse 33, John says, And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. So, first, the Baptist is saying that. No one's receiving what he's saying. No one is no one is listening. No one is listening to his testimony. This one who's come down from heaven has words straight from God and no one is listening. Well, that agrees with what the Apostle John said in the prologue to this gospel. Remember what did he say about the light? He says John said the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. He came to his own. And his own received him not. Well, then, then the Baptist here in in thirty three, it, it seems he's saying the other side of it. He's he's almost it's, it's like his next statement seems to contradict right what he just said, um, because he says, um, and yet no one receives his testimony. Then in verse thirty three, he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. But guess what? That also agrees with what the Apostle John said in the prologue. Remember. But as many as, just after those verses about the light shining in the darkness and no one understands it. In the prologue, the Apostle John said, but as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. So what he's, John the Baptist is describing two groups of people. There are people who are receiving the testimony and there are people who are not receiving the testimony. Certainly, uh, there were many people who rejected Jesus. Certainly. Almost all of the religious leaders of the day completely rejected Him. Almost all of them. Right? So, because He challenged everything that they were setting up. Remember, they had made ministry and religion about... They were very good at religion, right? They were. <laughs> they had made it all about them and their position. And Jesus was challenging all that. So, almost all of them rejected Jesus. But there were some, there were some whose eyes and ears were opened and they heard the truth straight from Jesus' lips. And John the Baptist knows this. The Apostle John knows this. There was definitely a divide among people. John continues in verse 34, says, "For For He whom God has sent speaks the Word of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. When God anointed His Son as the Messiah, He was not given a portion, a piece, a measure of the Holy Spirit. He didn't didn't carve Him out a little piece and give it to Him. No, God did not measure out of dose. He did what? He poured out the entire entire Holy Spirit on His Son. The Son, the Messiah, was given the full measure of the Holy Spirit. It's immeasurable. 
And that is the combination with the Holy Spirit and the Messiah is what is moving Jesus through His ministry. It's empowering the whole ministry. John gets to the end um, and in verses 35 and and uh, 36, and he is sharing some some joyful affirmations, but he also has a word of caution. Verse uh, 35 and 36, he says, "The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son." shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Notice notice um, the way he begins. says, the Father loves the Son. You see how he started that? The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And so the ones who believe in the Son now have everlasting life. So, when we think about that, this idea that the whole of Scripture uh, speaks of God's love for His people, but many times we often forget the basis of that love. And we see here that John is pointing to it. Remember, we're, we are not natural children of God. Okay, we, we are what? We are children of the darkness. We are adopted into God's family. We are not natural born. We are adopted children for God. And God's love for us is first of all grounded in His love for His Son. And you see that's what the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. You see that's where John starts. Where did this start? The Father loves the Son. So if God has any love for you, it's because first He loves His Son. That's we forget that a lot of times, don't we? We really forget that. We kind of get it's it's God. Well, God loved me. Well, God does love you if you're in His family, but He loves you because He first loved His Son, and is and it's grounded in His love for the Son. So even even our election, okay, uh, our election must be understood to be in the Son. Okay, the election is we were uh, as God has chosen His people from before time. It was done in the Son. It was it was word to love. He loved His Son. It is it is because of the Father's love for the Son that we can now stand forgiven before God. And as uh, and and we are in that group of those people here that John the Baptist says, but the wrath of God will not abide. We 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 are saved from the wrath of God, and we are saved unto everlasting life, eternal life. We are saved from the wrath. Why? Because of the Father's love for the Son. In. Um, MacArthur's study Bible, he has a wonderful um, summary or a wonderful couple of um, statements that kind of describe this end, this climax to this chapter as we as we end chapter 3 today. And this is from the MacArthur study Bible. It says, this constitutes a fitting climax to the chapter. 
John the Baptist has laid out two alternatives. Genuine faith and defiant disobedience. Thereby bringing to the forefront the threat of looming judgment. As John faded from the forefront, he offered an invitation to faith in the Son and clearly expressed the ultimate consequences of failure to believe. John put out two, right? You believe in the Son, you believe His testimony, everlasting life. If you reject Him, the wrath of God will be on you forever. Any questions or uh, any comments as we come to the end of this chapter? Okay. I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for our time this morning. Thank You for Your Word. Father, we ask that if there are any things said uh, here this morning, Father, that was in error, Father, we ask that You take it away from my memory like it never happened. And Father, um, we ask that uh, Your Word will, will change us, Father. And even now as we as we end this time together, Father, of, uh, of Bible study and, and lesson, Father, we now that as we, as we move into our worship service, Father, we ask that You will focus our minds not on ourselves but on You. Father, surely we enjoy being with one another and having fellowship, Father, but our worship is time as for fellowship with You. And so we ask that You focus our minds upon You. And we pray that our worship will be acceptable before You today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.